0: For a teenage Bobby Rahal, growing up in America in the 60s and reading about his heroes dominating on track, the idea of setting off for Europe to go wheel to wheel in Formula One was a pipe dream.
1: As a young man, I'd read about these great circuits. Monza, Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuit I loved and just all the tradition, the history. I was very much a romantic in some respects in terms of my racing and going to Europe and following in the footsteps of the Phil Hill or the Dan Gurney or to some extent the Jim Clark.
0: A pipe dream that became a reality after he raced and beat some legends in Formula Atlantic in the mid-70s. Patrick Tornbay, Keke Rosberg, James Hunt and Gilles Villeneuve. He ran competitively with them all.
1: It was our chance to show the world that we were just as good as they were. Uh, It was a lot of fun. That's where you found out that those guys were really human after all. Because you can compete with them.
0: Bobby's phenomenal record in the US caught the attention of Walter Wolfe. And after a successful stint in Formula 3, Bobby's big Formula 1 break came in 1978 at the US and Canadian Grand Prix, the last two races of the season.
1: My goal at that time was not to do anything dumb or stupid. I wanted to finish.
0: But the Canadian Grand Prix was fraught with issues. A crash during practice led to a last-minute dash to replace his WR5 with Schecter's refurbished WR1 from the previous year. After a strong start, the car began to misfire and Bobby didn't finish the race. And sadly, his Formula 1 dream was cut short. But for this driver, there were no regrets.
1: Not just everybody gets to Formula 1. My career in Formula 1 was nowhere near as long as I had hoped. You know, I got there based on my performances, and that, me, I'm, I, I'm very proud of.
0: I'm Tom Clarkson, and welcome to F1B on the Grid. For fans of IndyCar, you'll know Bobby for his on-track successes. As a driver, he won three IndyCar championships and 24 races, including the 1986 Indianapolis 500. And as a team owner, he won Indy again with Buddy Rice in 2004 and Takuma Sato just a couple of years ago. In this episode, Bobby winds back the decades and opens up about his extraordinary career on both sides of the Atlantic. What drew him to chase his Formula One dream, his friendship with Gilles Villeneuve, joining Jaguar Racing in 2000, and what really happened at those final two races of 1978. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Bobby, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Bobby, how much do you keep up with F1 these days?
1: Probably um, less than I used to, to be honest. Um, but still, I still went to the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin uh, as guests of uh, Williams. It was still a great experience to see. You couldn't deny the, you know, a great crowd, and uh, ultimately it was a pretty good race.
0: What do you make of the surge in interest in Formula One on your side of the pond?
1: Uh, there is no doubt that for the people I know or, or people I meet, that the Netflix program has done maybe more than anything to improve the fortunes of Formula One in, in the United States. Call that maybe the results of the pandemic, you know, where people had you know, a lot of free time on their hands to watch uh, television. But there's no question that a lot of young people that I've met over the last year or so were avid followers of the Netflix uh, uh, programming. And that's fantastic for Formula One because Formula One has always been a very niche series, category, whatever you want to call it here in America. You know, probably the the most popular uh, in the last I don't know, 30, 40 years is because of Mario Andretti's efforts Prior to that, it was maybe Dan Gurney, uh, and there were a number of Americans in Formula One in the 60s, and then Phil Hill in the 50s. But, you know, the the real interest in motorsports in America has always been either NASCAR or IndyCar.
0: Well, let's talk about what drew you to the sport now, because you very much came through the European route, didn't you? Yes.
1: You know, I grew up in the 60s as a teenager, and of course, my hero was Jimmy Clark.
0: Why, Why was Jimmy your hero?
1: My father raced sports cars as a hobby, you know, uh, strictly for fun. But so I was up, I would go with him to places like Road America, Elkhart Lake, and, and Watkins Glen. And, and of course, I never did see Jim Clark race in person, which is unfortunate. But, you know, through television, through the magazines, what have you, I just, and of course, he came to Indianapolis and, and won. And I always took pride in that because, um, you know, there was a road racer showing those, oval track guys what it's all about uh so uh and then of course you know there's dan gurney who was right there with them and dan gurney was a, for sure a hero of mine for everything that he did uh but i love jimmy clark because of his um nature uh his humility the fact that anything he drove in he won in pretty much uh just um, a gentleman and i just always felt that that was um if you were going to race and you were going to be successful, you should aspire to that example. There are moments in time that you remember when you grow up. You know, I remember when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I remember when Robert Kennedy was assassinated, you know, Martin Luther King. But, you know, just as important to me, I remember the day that Jim Clark was, was killed and that, you know, that was just the impact that he had on me personally. And frankly, all throughout my career, I tried to emulate you know his on and off track uh, example and so uh, that's how i became such a jim clark fan and still am today you know i still collect items that were there were his or what have you just because he just meant that much to me
0: and he triggered your interest in road racing in europe well
1: to me i wanted to go
0: to you know to formula one
1: or in part race in europe as a whole i just you know i mean i was what uh 13, 14 years old when the movie Grand Prix came out. And uh, if that movie didn't get your juices flowing, I'm not sure what would. And uh, of course, you know, that took place all in Europe, right? Formula One was international and you had, you know, there was examples of Americans who had done very well in Formula One, whether it was Phil Hill, or of course, Dan Gurney. Uh, there were others. So uh, Mario, of course, came in later on.
0: Bobby, I think we've got to the bottom of this. I think it's a mixture of Jim Clark and James Garner. That's what you wanted to be. <laughs>
1: and yeah, uh, Garner became a good friend of mine. And I, I told him, one time we were playing golf, I told him, I said, I said, you don't realize that that movie, you know, how that motivated me. And he, he was uh, a bit shocked by that. And I, um, I just told him, I mean, you're a young man, right? You've got, you're red blooded and uh, you you look at that movie. And of course the first scene where you're staring down the exhaust pipe of a car, the Formula One car, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So uh, that's what really, that's, and of course my, my father drove Porsches. It was European based racing. So that's kind of was the direction. I, I was never, I never had any real interest in IndyCar, for example until later on when there started being more and more road courses on the schedule, at which point that's when I headed in that direction. And that was not till 1982. So Europe was where I wanted to be. And there's no doubt in my mind that that also had something to do with my taking on the Jaguar program for Ford when I had the opportunity, because, you know, it was formula one and it was a huge American company and this was a chance to maybe make some history.
0: Well, Bobby, we'll come on to Jaguar later. Let's talk about your experiences in Formula One now. For a man who has achieved so much in motorsport, how important is it for you to have F1 on your CV? I
1: think it's important for sure, because I don't know, it it reaffirms or confirms to those who uh, may not know you that not just everybody gets to Formula One. While my Career in Formula One was nowhere near as long as I had hoped. You know, I got there based on my performances. And that, to me, I'm I'm very proud of.
0: Bobby, the two races you did were the 1978 US and Canadian Grand Prix with Wolf. So tell us, how did the opportunity come about?
1: Early in the year, that year, um, a fellow that I knew who um, at that time was involved with Walter Wolf came to me this was probably in i want to say march of 78 and said um you know walter wants to run a, a formula 3 team with mr delaro and we're going to basically have a test so we, we'd like you to come to the circuit in, in verano which is this little one mile long road course there and you know basically it was going to be a runoff you know whoever was going to be quickest was going to get the um, get the nod so I was obviously very happy to get that chance. And there was going to be two cars. The other car was being driven uh, by a young Austrian driver who actually was a, a ski uh, instructor and was the instructor for a fellow from Zurich, Switzerland, who was sponsoring the team, a guy named Oliver, uh, Oliver Hardmeyer. And anyway, he, um, so he was already there. But uh, uh, I'm at Long Beach. This is the first, I think it was the first one Atlantic race of the season that year. And uh, I was on pole, uh, and this is right, of you're right in front of all the Formula One teams. And I was on pole, and on the first lap, there's a false start, and on the pace lap, I got hit from behind uh, by a Swedish driver. I flattened my tire, so I had to come in, get the change. Well, by the time we got it all done, I was half a lap down, uh, they'd already started the race. By halfway through the race, I was uh, second, and catching the leader, I was right on the leader's tail. And uh, drive shaft broke, so I didn't finish the race, but after the race, of course, I'm you know disappointed naturally, because uh, I was hoping that our Long Beach would be like uh, Monaco is to Formula Three you know, at, the, at that time, anybody who won the Monaco Formula Three race was going to end up with a Formula One contract, so I was hoping Long Beach would do the same event after the race, this fellow that I knew, Rod Campbell, who was involved in Formula One for many years, uh, came up to me and he says, "Walter would like to see you so he took me over to Walter's hotel and there was Walter and um, Walter said, we're not going to do the runoff. We're not going to do any of this. I want you to drive the car. You know, he had watched the race with Jackie Stewart and I guess Jackie had made some nice comments and, and Walter, yeah, you know, was impressed enough, said, no. So next thing you know, I'm on my way to, to Verano, uh, Italy and to run the Formula three car. And so that, that the whole idea of that program was to do, Formula 3 races that were in conjunction with F1 races. So I drove Monaco. I drove Nürburgring, Uh, although there was no Formula 1 race in Nürburgring in 78, uh, but it had been a Formula 1 circuit, obviously. Uh, You know, I raced Monza, Italy, uh, Hermano, Spain, Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuits.
0: And Bobby, did you love it? Were you you in love with it?
1: Absolutely. To me, that's what it was all about. You know, uh, going to Monaco, I, I, I qualified very well. I was leading my hit, my heat. You know, I think I finished, I, I was running about fourth or fifth when I got, I banged wheels with another fellow and my car broke, so it was out of the race, but then finished third at the Nürburgring. That was the first time I'd ever been to the Nürburgring. You know, as a young man, I'd read about these great circuits and um, Monza and, of course, uh, uh, Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuit I loved and and just all the, I mean, the tradition, the history. I, I was a, very much a romantic in some respects in terms of, uh, my racing and, and going to Europe and, and following in the footsteps of the Phil Hill or the Dan Gurney or to some extent the Jim Clark. So, yeah, it was a, a great experience, built a lot of friendships. They remain even today, some 40 some years later. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was a great experience.
0: And how much warning did you get ahead of the U.S. Grand Prix that you were going to make your Formula One debut?
1: It was interesting, you know, Um uh, <laughs> you know, here I am, I'm driving this, this Wolf Formula Three car. And again, the whole idea had been by doing these races, they would prepare me for maybe the following year in Formula One, I'd have knowledge of the circuits. And there was always this carrot being dangled out there saying, okay, you know, keep doing it, keep going well. And, you know, U.S. Canadian Grand Prix are, are probably re- you know, realistic. Well, it's interesting. I went to the uh, Belgian Grand Prix that year just to, um, just to watch, I, I, you know, with the team. And the following Bob Sparshot, BS Fabrications, was running a, a McLaren M26 for um, Brett Lunger, who was an American driver. He came up to me, said, come over here. I'd like you to sit in this car and, and I'd like to talk to you. So I went over and sat and they had a spare M23 McLaren. So I sat in it and yeah, you know, fit and <laughs> where I fit it. Of course, I would have fit in anything, you know, the chance to do Formula One. And he actually wanted, he was going to talk to me. He wanted me to do about five or six races with them that year. Well, the advice I got from uh, the Wolf people was no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. Just be patient. Watkins, Glen, and Montreal will will happen. It's interesting that the guy that Bob Sparshot ended up um, hiring was uh, Nelson Piquet. Uh, <laughs> so you kind of go, well, the what ifs, right? Uh, but in any event, so. I would think by what Watkins Glen was first weekend of October. I would have thought by September one, maybe a month or so prior to that official word was was given. And I did a test at uh, the Brands Hatch on the on the Indy circuit, the short circuit, um, which was really kind of a horrible place to test a Formula One car, but because it was so short. But anyway, uh, off we went, and here here's my chance.
0: And what were your first impressions of the car at Brands Hatch?
1: That everything happened pretty quickly. (laughs) You know, the most powerful car I'd been in prior to that was maybe 200 horsepower. And, uh, you know, Formula One car in those days was 500, you know, uh, or thereabouts, maybe a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, a lot of things happened uh, a lot more quickly. And, of course, that was the start of the whole ground effect era. Um, The Lotus 79 that year that Mario Andretti had was dominant, the dominant car. I think he and Ronnie Peterson won just about every, you know, most of the races. So I'd never driven a, a ground effect car. I'd never driven a, that fast a car. Never uh, as big uh, of a car as compared to what, you know, the other cars. But it's like anything, you, you, you kind of get used to it. And uh, every lap a little bit more comfortable with it. And I think the test went pretty well. Certainly, I think they were, they were pleased. And that was probably only two weeks or so prior to the Grand Prix two three weeks so here we were we were off uh, off to the races as they say
0: and can you remember what the atmosphere was like at watkins glen because let's not forget ronnie peterson had been killed at the previous race ricardo Patrese had been banned from driving by the gpda did you feel like you were sort of i don't know stepping into the fire how did it feel as a young guy
1: well for sure um First off, when I got up there, it was it was cold and it always was cold. I mean, that was that's the beautiful time of the year at Watkins when trees are all changing colors. And but it's cold. That whole weekend was cold. I don't think it got above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was not very comfortable in that respect. But, you know, I was where I wanted to be. And, you know, Jody Schechter was was leading the team and um, he'd had an up and down year with the car, the WR5. Uh, it was It was not the – I wouldn't say it was the best um, car because I, I later on drove an M23, which was a fabulous car. I kind of always wondered, boy, what if I'd driven that car instead? But uh, nevertheless, you know, my goal at that time was not to do anything dumb or stupid and, um, you know, qualify. I think we qualified 20th out of 28 or 30 cars, and um, I wanted to finish, uh, and we did. We finished 12th. But it was kind of a, you know, it was a very careful race. Like I said, I just didn't want to make any mistakes. And again, the idea was that we'd do those two races and then uh, do Formula One full-time in 1979. Of course, that didn't happen. But uh, anyway, finished okay at Watkins Glen. I actually had a much better weekend in Montreal in terms of competitiveness. Unfortunately, didn't finish that race, but I think showed the pace that we could uh, generate. And of course, now it's, you know, you got one race under your belt. Uh, You knew what to expect, I suppose.
0: The races were only one week apart. What did you do between them? Was there an opportunity to go testing or was it just hot-footing it from from, uh, up to Montreal?
1: You know, I I can't remember exactly, but I would tell you that I thought I probably went home. I was living in uh, Connecticut uh, near New York City at the time. I probably went home, and then, you know, of course, you drove everywhere because you didn't have any money to fly necessarily, and uh, uh, then probably drove up to Montreal. And, of course, Montreal was just as cold as Watkins Glen, Gray. The best thing about Montreal was that uh, my friend, Gilles Villeneuve, won his first Formula One race in front of his home, uh, his home country, which was tremendous. But, um, yeah, I, there wasn't a lot. I think... This, Left Watkins Glen and went up there. No testing, though. No.
0: And it was the first Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal. I remember the, the drivers giving it huh, a bit of a cold reception. Excuse the pun. But uh, Mario in particular, what did you make of the track back then?
1: You know, I, I don't know. I actually did drive at Montreal in a Formula Atlantic race. Yeah, it was probably a month or so before the Grand Prix because they had to have a FIA rated race before you could have a grand prix on the same circuit the circuit was different than it is today so that's been changed uh, a bit you know there probably wasn't a lot of places a lot of areas to pass but i thought it was a pretty nice circuit despite the fact that it was rainy it rained a lot it was cold so i mean the conditions were were nothing you know to, to speak of but the basic layout of the circuit i thought was pretty good and yeah, it's different today than it was then, but a lot of it's the same. So you know, it's it's been a, a I think it's proven its value as a as a circuit, and of course Montreal is just a you know a fantastic Quebec as, as a province, but Montreal as a city is a fantastic. Following supporters of Formula One, and as I said in those days, it was you know Gilles and you know, of course she was a hero in Canada and uh, and in Quebec. So, you know, a big crowd, uh, a hometown crowd, as they say, and he, he uh, certainly responded.:
0: Bobby, let's talk a little bit more about Villeneuve because you'd finished second to him in Formula Atlantic the previous year. What kind of a driver was he at that stage of his career?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd raced against Jill, starting in 1975, I was a rookie. He'd He'd been in uh, Atlantic uh, the year previous, um, had had an accident, broke his leg, so he didn't do the whole series, but came back in 75. And, um, you know, Jill's wife was American, Joanne, so there was a, a little bit of a connection there for us. Atlantic was like Formula 3 in those days, very, very competitive, and everybody traveled together. It was like a big circus. So Jill and I, and, and uh, you know, we've developed a nice relationship. You know, Jill was and i forget one race we were running 1 2 in, in heavy heavy rain and i was right behind him and and this was up in uh, in manitoba and he hit the, a guy in front of him just absolutely just disappeared underneath the, the fellow in front you know went underneath him about halfway halfway down the other guy's car and i thought oh great he's going to be out of the race now so you know, i'll have it as i i have it for my own and nothing happened i mean he, his, his car wasn't damaged i mean it was just Unbelievable. I mean, Jill just gave it his all. Um, You know, he didn't come from money. He'd been a world champion in in snowmobile racing, which takes tremendous bravery. I don't think anybody could doubt Jill's bravery. Uh, And he had tremendous car control, uh, which I think most people would attribute to his snowmobiling. You know, and he was just a very focused guy. He didn't really have much beyond that. And uh, I've always said this, and I, I really do maintain this, while Gilles had a lot of great talent, for sure, in 76, which is the year that really put him, set him on his way, his, his manager, the guy who ran the team for him was a guy named Ray Wardell. And Ray had been uh, a March Formula 2 team manager. He'd been in Formula 1 with March. Uh, and nobody, I think, in the series recognized just how good Ray was and, and the impact that he would have on Gilles' success. I really give Ray a lot of credit for kind of taking this rough diamond and polishing it and getting it to where it was. Uh, and together, Jill and, and Ray were a, a very formidable combination. And I think if Jill were alive today or maybe what he, when he was alive, I don't know, but uh, I would think he would give Ray Wardell some credit for that too. It really made a difference. And of course, in 76, the Trois-Rivières, which was a race we all looked forward to over here because... It was our chance to race against Formula One drivers, Formula Two drivers, what have you from Europe, and our chance to show the world that we were just as good as they were. I mean, Jill dominated the race. And that's when James Hunt was there, went back to McLaren and said, you got to look at this guy. He's something special, And which they later did.
0: Now, you raced so many great drivers in your career, Formula One drivers in Formula Atlantic, the, the Villeneuve's, the Joneses, Hunt, Tornbay, etc. Was Villeneuve the fastest of the lot?
1: Uh, the guy who was very good that we I raced with for the couple of years years, KK Rosberg, you know? Uh, and in those days it was, you know, KK, Jill. I mean, I think Jill was probably, um, I don't know if I would say he was the fastest I and mean, he was certainly one of the fastest. Rosberg was pretty quick. I think there were others that, you know, on their given day were just as quick, but you know, Jill, he found himself in 1976 and, you know, he stopped crashing Again, tremendous car control and ended up and with a very good team and ended, ended up dominating. Um, you know, Rossberg won some races in those years. I won some races. Uh, Danny Sullivan was there. As you say, and then, of course, you go to Trivier, you have James Hunt, Patrick Tambay, um, uh, Depailler, uh, Vittorio Brambilla won the race one year, I think in 75. Um, you know, a lot of guys went to that race. Uh, Alan Jones. Uh, it was a lot of fun because, you know, that's where you found out that those guys were really human after all, because you can compete with them. But uh, it was still a thrill to say you race against those guys. And, and um, everybody over here really looked forward to that far de the air weekend.
0: Now, what happened with Wolf at the end of 78? So you've done those two races and probably quite rightly, we're thinking, well, that was nice preparation for 79. What happened next?
1: At race in Montreal, so it was raining heavily, uh, just to give it some perspective here. And uh, I think I was about fourth quickest, and somebody should have said, you know, we better pit him. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I went off and hit the guardrail and tore off the right front corner, which damaged the monocoque, uh, the way they fixed the uh, suspension, the rocker arm on the top and the front, um, uh, broke this plate. So... To their credit, instead of saying, well, that's that, to their credit, they dragged WR1, which was our, Harvey Postlethwaite's car for Jody in 78, or 77, I should say. And um, it was in a, I think it was in a Hilton hotel, it was a show car or something. They dragged it out, and the mechanics, uh, you know, I'm sure grumbling, they dragged it out, put an engine in it. And I don't think anybody thought we were going to qualify, and we ended up qualifying. The car
0: so that is overnight friday night they're thinking well we can't use the wr5 anymore <laughs> has anyone seen a wolf anywhere
1: <laughs> i don't think anybody anticipated that they were going to uh get it ready for a race and uh anyway I put a motor engine in it i qualified in and actually in the race uh you know, i passed uh hunt i passed uh, pironi i passed uh i was running like i think 10th or something very early in the race i mean i passed about eight cars or something and, uh, all, then all of a sudden as the fuel load lightened, um, one of the flapper valves in the fuel tank wasn't sealing correctly. So every time I go into a corner, it would misfire. And as the fuel load went down, it just got worse and worse and worse. So we came in and we pitted, but I really, well, I was disappointed that we didn't finish. I felt pretty good about the fact that we had passed some good guys and, you know, we're running with some good people. And the next day, I think it was, uh, uh Peter war was the team manager for, uh, uh, Walter. And, um, you know, he was pretty noncommittal about the next year. And I, am not sure he was a big fan anyway, to be honest. So I was kind of in limbo for about another month or so. Uh, you know, is it going to happen? And of course, then they hired James Hunt to replace Jody. You know, Jody went on to Ferrari to win the world championship the next year. And, uh, anyway, apparently James only wanted a one car team. And so yours truly was uh, on the street, you know, as they say. So, you know, that was the end of my Formula One career. I did end up going back to Europe to race in Formula Two, hoping that uh, opportunity would uh, would arise over there. Uh, it never did. And also by that midway through 1979, I was uh, hired to replace George Falmer in the Can-Am series here in America. And um, so... Uh, my, my European adventure was, uh, was uh, you know, in its final days.
0: How do you reflect on that period now? Is it, is it a source of frustration?
1: Well, you know, I, I look back and, you know, I probably would have done some things differently. I didn't have any real representation over there. In the end, though, um, you know, I can't complain. I I ended up uh, going to the Can-Am Series. when won some races. I ended up going to IndyCar and, and the rest is history on that front, but I, I truly did. And of course I did some sports car racing in Europe. I, you know, Le Mans in 1980, 81, 82, uh, Nürburgring, uh, the six hours at uh, Silverstone. So I still, I still had some, um, you know, some uh, experiences, uh, on the sports car side of the equation in Europe, loved it, you know, loved going to Le Mans again, ticking that box as we would say, you know, it's something I wished I'd, I'd done more of. Uh, but, as I got into IndyCars, there was always a conflict uh, with that weekend. Um, you know, I, but I look back and again, I, I, I made a lot of friends that are still friends today. Some are no longer with us, but some are still there. And it's um, I think there's a, um, a a lot of very positive feelings I have towards uh, my time in Europe racing.
0: Now, on the subject of IndyCar, you had, as you say, the most phenomenal career. 24 wins, three championships, that Indy 500 in 1986, but there's one episode in your IndyCar career that I want to ask you about now, and it involves Fiorano and Ferrari. In 1985, how close did you get to racing a Ferrari IndyCar in the mid '80s? You
1: know, by that time we had had a fair degree of success in IndyCar racing, despite only having been in it for three years as a team. And me as a driver, it was, it was called True Sports, was the team. Uh, Jim Truman, who was the owner of the team, a successful businessman, knew uh, Leo Mel, who was the head of Goodyear Racing quite well. And Leo is the one who really directed for him. When Ferrari told Leo Mel that they were interested in coming to IndyCar, Leo directed them to come to us. So uh, Piero Lardi Ferrari came to Ohio I remember having dinner with he and Jim and Steve Horn, who was the team manager, and uh, a deal was put together. And we, so we shipped off one of our 85 March Indy cars, plus a couple of uh, mechanics, to Fiorano. They got there maybe a week or two ahead of me then I got there, and, and the idea being to drive the car around Fiorano. First off, so they could see what a modern day, in, you know, the latest competitive Indy car was at the time. And also, as they were looking to design a car, maybe give them some direction as to, you know, because IndyCar is different than a Formula One car. So it was important that they had that experience, that Ferrari had the experience with with that IndyCar and with our people. And so, yeah, so I flew over, uh, did a couple days testing uh, there. You know, for me, it was great to be back in Italy because I'd been there with Dallara. Uh, I really love Italy and love the, the, the passion that you see for motorsports that exists in Italy is, is tremendous. So um, it was wonderful to go there to meet uh, Mr. Ferrari was something very special.
0: What impression did Enzo make on you, Bobby?
1: Kind of intimidating. <laughs> but I think, I think he made that same impression on a lot of people. Um, Brenda, his secretary, was uh, English. And thank God for her because I think she, uh, uh, in fact, I saw her not so not long ago. I mean, I think she was like a mother to many drivers, especially those who weren't Italian. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, here you are. It's like, I think it's probably even more impressive than meeting the Pope. (laughs) I mean, you met Ferrari. uh, Mr. Ferrari, He, you know, all you had to do was look at the history of Formula One. You know, he he was the dominant figure. So, yeah, that was a real pleasure, real honor, privilege. To have spent some time in his office with him and, and chatting.
0: Now, am I right in saying that Michele Alboreto tested the March Indy car as well?
1: Yeah. And I, I never drove the actual Ferrari Indy car. I think Michele did that as well. Because by the time, so I think I was over there in probably September of 85 doing the test, you know, they, they built the car very quickly. But I, was, I would think by November, the program was dead. And a yeah, real shame because it would have been spectacular too. I mean, it's it's been phenomenal just how much interest there's been in that program, despite the fact that it was stillborn at Indy. There was a picture, the car was over in Indianapolis a few years ago, and they took a picture of it on the front straight. Ferrari, you know, I've been to the museum recently and Ferrari highlights that car. You know, it's not like they've, they've hidden it. I mean, they, they highlight it. And I think everybody just just kind of wonders, you know, what would have been You know, what would have happened had Ferrari enter uh, IndyCar? And, um, you know, hopefully one day we'll, we'll know when Ferrari does come.
0: Another case of what might have been in your career, I think, Bobby, is Jaguar Racing. You were appointed team principal in, what was it, December 2000. First of all, what was it about the team that was so appealing to you?
1: Well, it was, first off, The man who took me there was a fellow named um, Neil Ressler. Neil was head of Ford Engineering Worldwide. A wonderful man, very smart guy, uh, a lot of respect people had for him. And he had come in and sort of, uh, when Ford bought Stewart Formula One, he'd come in to kind of nurture that program along a bit. He's the one who asked me if I would be interested in going there. Ford had obviously, they bought it you know, it's interesting. Uh, and, I, and I think later on during that period, you'd see how that ownership would be described, but Ford had very different ways of doing things than, say a Frank Williams or a Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, when, you know, when he wanted to build a wind tunnel, he knew he had to have it. So they did it and they probably figured, well, we'll figure out how to pay for it later. And when you dealt with Ford, you, everything had to be, you know, they had to be, um, a book of reasons why, why do we need to spend this money, blah, blah, blah. So I I came to learn that the longer I was at Jaguar, but in any event, they wanted me to go in there and and kind of run the ship a bit. I was very interested in it because maybe because I felt like I had unfinished business from my Formula One career it might have had something to do with it. I think I really enjoyed living in Europe and England and, and thought it would be a great experience. I had very good people running the IndyCar program, so I felt like, you know, I could go back and forth. And of course, Ford agreed, I could do that. The unfortunate thing with the real unraveling of the whole program, I get there and the main designer decides to quit. Now I've got to go find a designer. I mean, there was, <laughs> it was never a, never a dull moment those, that first six months.
0: Hey, but you aimed high when it came to finding a new designer.
1: First all, I asked to come in and he did was Steve Nichols who was American and Steve had been with McLaren for a number of years. Steve was a very smart guy and, uh, you know, very methodical, very, uh, introspective, um, sharp guy. What really started the issues of the problems, Neil Ressler's daughter was dying of cancer. So, uh, he had to go back to the U S to, to be with her. And, uh, he, he basically tossed the ball to uh, Wolfgang Reitzler who Ford had hired from BMW to take over what they called the premier auto group, which was Jaguar, Land Rover, Volvo, and even Lincoln at that time, and at least initially. And as part of it, they ended up buying Cosworth Engineering, they ended up buying Pi Electronics and Jaguar Formula One from Stewart. And so um, now that you know, the champion, now Wolfgang, he, he decided he needed somebody to run you know, all, the, all the racing properties, Cosworth, pie, um, Jaguar. And, and I was only on the Jaguar program. And so he invited Nikki Lauda to come in and, and, um, you know, Nikki's, Nikki's a, a very demanding guy. Very, uh, uh, I called him the white tornado because whenever he'd come, there'd be stuff everywhere and he'd leave. And then everybody had to clean everything up. And it was clear that, um, Either he was going to run the program or I was going to run the uh, Formula One program. And, and it, of course, inevitably, you can only have one boss. So we parted in about August or September of 2001. You know, I was proud we finished third at, Le- at uh, Monaco, which I thought was a pretty good, pretty good finish. Uh, two Ferraris and a Jaguar. I remember, I don't know, somebody, might have been Bernie now, that's what the way it should look, where you had this, these two great manufacturers you know, on the, on the victory stand.
0: How much support did you get from Bernie?
1: Bernie was an amazing guy. I really like him. Um, first off, I would tell you that everything he said he'd, he would do, he did. It, it's interesting. So I took over as interim chairman of, or interim CEO of CART of, uh, in June of that year, and I was in, in England, so I went to see Bernie. And he asked me if I, I was feeling okay. And I said, "Yeah, I feel fine, thank you." And he goes, "Okay, I just wanted because I thought you had to be sick to take that job on." You know, <laughs> he didn't know that I had already pretty much agreed, or I was in discussions with Ford uh, to come to to do Jaguar. So my intent to meet him that day was to uh, reacquaint ourselves a little bit, and and um, and of course, then it was announced at the U.S. Grand Prix in Indianapolis. That's when they announced. Uh, my coming on as as the as team principal, but then I, I'd see, you know. Of course, we had team principal meetings in those days. Bernie was always a big part of that, as well as Max Mosley. And um, so uh, I got to, I'd say, I got to know Bernie a little bit. But you cannot deny what he created, and um, there's a lot of a uh, lot of very wealthy racing people out there because of Bernie Ecclestone.
0: Now, what about Adrian Newey? How close did you get to signing Adrian?
1: Well, I think I would tell you that we had a signed agreement. I remember uh, I had dinner with Adrian and his wife at the Monaco Grand Prix. We had a mutual friend and his wife. that were at the race. So we all got together. To dinner. Uh, that was the weekend that everything had really come together. Um, probably just prior to that weekend. And by all intents, we were going to, we were going to go forward. And then um, somebody said something to Ron Dennis. And, um, all of a sudden, everything got more complicated. Um, and In the end, it, it, it didn't happen, and I think it didn't happen in part because I think Ron was very good at describing what life under Ford would be like compared to life under McLaren, as I mentioned earlier. I'll never forget um, having to explain to the, the head treasurer of the Premier Auto Group why I felt it was worth X amount of dollars to get Adrian Newey you know, how much money we'd save because he already had the information, you know, I mean, the notoriety that it would bring, the the other people that he would bring with him, it would shorten our our learning curve dramatically. So therefore, probably worth whatever that was going to cost. And I just it took me all day. And I just remember saying to myself, why should something so obvious take so long? And uh, that soured me a bit on it, frankly. And also, by that time, Nicky and I were at loggerheads. Um, you know it was not going well from that front, and I think Ron just convinced um Adrian that you know he'd be much better off staying where he was and and that ended up being proven to be right, although I think it's ironic that Red Bulls in the old Jaguar racing headquarters, so so some things do you know some things did work
0: and he clearly had itchy feet at the time he was looking for something else, a new project wasn't he
1: yeah, you know, and of course, you know. Adrian had been my engineer in IndyCar in 84 and 85. I tried to convince him to go to Ferrari to do the IndyCar. Uh, the guy who owned uh, March convinced him otherwise.
0: Robin Hurd. Are you talking about Robin Hurd? Robin
1: Hurd, eh? Adrian actually went to Michael Andretti in 86, and then Mario Andretti in 87, and then he went to the Leighton house with Robin in 88. But even in the early 90s, I spoke to, to Adrian about um, uh, becoming a, a partner and in and in those days, an IndyCar, you could build your own car, as some people did. Penske was doing that. So, you know, come be a partner, live in the States, or we could even, you could even work out of England, design a, uh, an Indy car, and let's go racing. And I think he gave it some thought. But in the end, Formula One was really where he wanted to be. And, and of course, uh, I think he went to Williams, right about the area of you know, that Williams at that time. So you know, obviously, Formula One presented the intellectual challenge that uh, Adrian was looking for. In the end, I think the 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 strength of our relationship, uh, which was created during those two years in Indy cars, has been well shown by, despite all of these ups and downs, uh, he and I remain very good friends, and and um, uh, we see each other. Uh, in fact, we had dinner together in uh, in Austin, and uh, so a lot of a lot of. A lot of good, uh, a lot of good memories there.
0: You've mentioned team ownership a couple of times. What about Formula One for you? Michael Andretti got very close to getting involved with Sauber last year. Does Formula One interest you, even now?
1: I, I think at this stage, um, I would say. I mean, you never say no to anything, you know, without really looking at it. But um, I really don't have the interest at this stage of the game. I think, in part. Because as long as there's the manufacturers involved, um, the ability to compete against that kind of financial depth that they may have would really be tough to do. The nice thing about IndyCar is that it's still, each team is still relatively privately owned. You know, Uh, Roger Penske owns his team, Chip Ganassi his. I mean, we're not talking major corporations on him. So, you know, your ability to compete under that uh, basis is a lot greater. So I think for me, um, my future in Formula One is going to go to some great races, enjoy great food, great company, and watch a great race.
0: couple more, if I may, uh, Bobby. Just quickly, from a, a driving point of view in IndyCar now, who do you think could cut it in Formula One? Everyone talks about Colton Herta. maybe your son Graham. Just who's impressing you at the minute?
1: You know, I think, let's face it, first off, whoever it is would have to go into one of the best teams. You know, Mercedes or... Or Red Bull. I mean, the the technology is so advanced that if you don't have all the everything behind you, you're you're it's going to be difficult to show. Uh, You know, I think Colton Herta's got a lot of potential. Young, he's very young, so you know, as we say, there's a lot of runway ahead of him. He's going to be around for a while. I really like um, Pato Award, and I know he's going to drive. He tested the McLaren. I think he's special. I think he's pretty special. And you give them some time uh, and, you know, I don't know what the situation with McLaren is, but, and they've done a good job as of late. So there's, there's an opportunity there. Um, You know, I think from my son, Graham, he's just too tall. Uh, I don't think he fit fit the cars. He's about uh, 6'3", 6'3", 6'4". And, you know, he's now 33, so, it would have been great to see him in a cart some years ago, but it just never, uh, never really the opportunity didn't come. But you know, when you look at the the young guys, and again, Colton Hurta, Pato Award, um, I, I thought Paloo was, was pretty impressive this year. Uh, you know, two years into it and really outperforming Dixon, who's kind of the yardstick, uh, and doing well in all circuits. Now, he's with a great team. That, that helps tremendously. But still, I thought he did a very good uh, job. So, you know, I think any one of those guys, you put them in the, the right car, give them some time, I think they could do pretty well.
0: Well, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. You've had a phenomenal career. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: There is definitely a desire to get a fast American on the F1 grid, Bobby. Will it be Colton Herter or Pato Award or someone else? But wasn't that a fascinating chat? Bobby's knowledge and experience of motorsport permeates through every sentence. And although the bulk of his racing career was in North America, his passion for Formula One really comes across. I can't help but wonder what might have happened in Formula One for Bobby had the cards fallen differently, but we'll never know. Bobby, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and I look forward to seeing you again in Austin. There were some big names mentioned during that conversation, not least Patrick Tombe, Steve Nichols and Alan Jones. And if you take a look at the Beyond the Grid archive, you'll find episodes with each of these legends, including a special episode dedicated to Gilles Villeneuve. You'll find the links in the show notes. Now, as ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Bobby, and I'll read out some of the best ones at the end of next week's show. And that, of course, brings me on to what you sent in about James Key after last week's episode. Let's start with this from David Arama. I love hearing interviews with the engineers, says David. There's so much to learn about management of complexity and teams of people. And James Key also sounds like a great dad. Yes, he does sound like a great dad, doesn't he, David? Prioritizing their education over his career at Sauber. And yes, there is a great deal to learn from these engineers. And what about this from Renault Bosman? James, you are truly inspiring by how you approached your first technical director role. It was insightful by showing sentiment to the first F1 car you built. And I loved how important family is to you and the decisions in your career included your kids. McLaren and Formula One are in great hands. Well, that's a lovely message, Reno. James does seem very sorted, doesn't he? The sort of guy you'd want to work for. And we'll end with this one from John, who says, James is that rare mix of a brilliant engineer who's also very articulate. How often do you get such a perfect mix? Well, John, that's exactly why he's McLaren's technical director, a man who's able to lead in every sense of the word. We'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for your messages and please remember to get in touch with your thoughts and stories about Bobby Rahel and please make sure you follow F1 Beyond the Grid on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, why not check out this week's edition of F1 Nation where you'll find us amongst the action at the Monaco Grand Prix. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.